Grace and peace to you all, and welcome to the Calvary Road with Pastor Sam Allen. I find myself growing anxious over things that are happening or decisions that need to be made. And you don't want to let the enemy convince you that, well, you don't even trust the Lord just because you grow a little fearful. You do the right thing. What did they do? They came and said, Lord, save us. They had enough faith to believe that he could save them, but they were fearful enough that they couldn't just relax and see if he was going to or how that was going to happen. In his message entitled, Is Anything Too Hard for the Lord?, Pastor Sam guides us through the final 16 verses of Matthew chapter 8, starting in verse 18. Right on the heels of a series of miraculous healings, we now see Jesus deal with some other circumstances, the type of things that can test our faith in the Lord. Matthew chapter 8, verses 18 through 34. If you've got your Bibles, turn in them to Matthew 8, picking up at verse 18. The title of our message is, Anything Too Hard for the Lord. It's an important question because we're absolutely going to face situations, trials, tribulations, times of testing and persecution where we're going to wonder, is the Lord going to be able to handle this? Will the Lord come through in the midst of this? You need to know the book of Ephesians answers that question. Is anything too hard for the Lord telling us that God is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all we ask or think? What that tells us is there's nothing too hard for our Lord. He can do exceedingly abundantly above all we ask or think. Well, we've already had a reading of the passage. Now we're going to have an exposition of it. We're going to look into it and try to glean from it some things that the Lord could, will apply to us personally, individually, and practically. The first I want you to note is that each crisis here was actually either brought about by a personal encounter with Jesus or was, well, solved by a personal encounter with Jesus. And really, encountering Jesus, for many, is a crisis in and of itself. It was true for these first two disciples mentioned. The first we read was a scribe. Now, a scribe was a teacher, a scholar, a student, and a lifelong student at that. And this particular scribe, while most of them had real problems with Jesus, rejected Jesus outright. This scribe, like many described for us at the end of chapter 7, was no doubt astonished at his teaching. And we read in chapter 7, verse 29, he taught them as one having authority and not as the scribes. See, here's a guy, he studied his whole life. He's a scholar, he's respected, he's admired, he's teaching. And he hears Jesus and he realizes, he recognizes there's something different about his teaching. Somebody years ago said, you know, it was a rather uneducated guy down in the South, but he said, you know, God don't have no Ph.D. And somebody said, well, how do you know that? And he said, well, he don't quote nobody. And that's absolutely true. Jesus didn't quote, well, sometimes he quoted from those whom he had inspired in the Old Testament. But Jesus, when he spoke, spoke with authority. It was true in his teaching. Now we see it's true in the very practical, everyday ministry of touching, hurting, 
needy lives. He healed a leper through touch in a word. He healed a centurion servant at a distance with a word. He, he healed Peter's mother-in-law simply with a touch. And, and now, before we get into a couple radical and wonderful demonstrations of his power over the, the natural and the supernatural realm, we find this scribe coming to him. And, and basically what the scribe does is he says there in verse 19, Teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. Now you would expect Jesus to say, Great, I'm looking for some educated guys. I'm looking for some serious students and scholars. You'll be perfect on my team. In fact, I've got these guys, Peter, James, and John. Maybe you could do some remedial work with them. But no, he doesn't say that at all. In fact, what he does tell them, or tell him, is foxes have holes, birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Seems like a bit of an odd response, but in its essence, when you boil it down, what Jesus is saying, listen, you better count the cost. The scribe was moving a bit too quickly, like many who hear the truth of the kingdom of God and, and grasp it. Hey, God's there and he loves us and he has a plan and purpose for us. This scribe's like, hey, where do I sign up? I'm ready to go with you, to follow after you, to represent you. And Jesus is saying, as he would say to all of us, count the cost. Be sure. Is he discouraging the man? No. He's simply trying to bring him down to seeing things objectively and spiritually to say, be careful because the prestige you experience, the adoration you feel, all of those things, you begin to walk with me, they're out the window. You begin to follow me, the comfort and the pleasure and all that you possess, hey, that's left behind as well. Now, Jesus is looking, of course, for men and women, boys and girls to follow him, but he will always be saying, count the cost. Be sure that you know what you've decided to do. Well, yet another disciple appears on the scene. And that word another tells us this scribe was, in fact, a disciple of Jesus. Don't be confused by that. Many became disciples who over time forsook him, fled from him, left him, at some point or another. In fact, when you get to John 666, how hard is that to remember? It says that many of his disciples turned away and walked with him no more. Wow, it's appropriate for the, the passage, wouldn't you think? They turned away and walked with him no more. He's telling this guy, be sure, count the cost. You're moving a bit too quickly. The second guy, though, as uh, he comes and says, hey, let me first go bury my father. Jesus' response seems a little odd at first. As he says, follow me and let the dead bury their own dead. It's been suggested by some as Jesus is saying, well, you know, he's already gone. There's nothing you can do for him. I don't really think this guy's dad was dead yet. I don't think it's so much, hey, there's a funeral and I need to be a part of it. No, Jesus would have had him there most certainly as a witness and, and someone who could share in the midst of it. No, I believe he's simply saying, hey, 
I want to follow you and, and I'm interested in being a real disciple and representative, but, but, you know, I got this inheritance thing and it's, you know, I don't know. I think that this guy was really saying, just give me some time and eventually I'll come around. Let me first take care of business at home. And some of us have done that very thing. We're like, hey, first I got to resolve these issues or these conflicts, or I need to get to this place or this plateau or acquire these possessions. And you need to know that if the first guy was moving too quickly, this guy's moving too slowly. The Lord's saying, let's get with it. And, and he's saying, first, let me bury my father. Now, if his father wasn't dead, we don't want to imagine that he's saying, well, I'm going to go bury him alive. I don't think that's the case either. But what he is saying is, just give me some time. And when dad dies, hey, I'll be there for you, you see, because I'll have all I need to secure me. And then, hey, I'll even be able to help you. And in our natural way of seeing things, well, we always are going to think, well, if I have this or do this or accomplish that or get to this, talk to musicians. Rich and I have had these conversations over the years. All Christian musicians think if they became famous in the secular world, they could be better witnesses for Jesus. But my question is always, what kind of a witness are you in the Christian world? Because if you're not doing real good there, you get over and what they call crossing over. Hey, I'm not saying that can't happen. I'm saying it's easier, though, for God to, to take a non-Christian and make him a Christian who's already there. And then that person's going to have to struggle with those issues. Then for somebody to work and aspire and think, if I just get to that place, then I'll really be able to serve the Lord. Then I'll really be a witness for the Lord. No, you'll be the same person you are now. It'll be a more threatening environment, a more difficult situation. And, and so the first guy's moving, well, a bit too quickly. The second guy's moving a bit too slowly. And of course, the scripture tells us either way, we've got to deny ourselves, take up our cross and follow him. That's what these guys needed to do. They needed to stop trying to figure out how it would work. And they needed, as Jesus instructs us to do, to lose their lives for his sake, knowing that he who tries to save his life will lose it. But the one who loses his life for his sake, well, you'll find it real life, everlasting life, eternal life. Well, we have these first two characters, these disciples then introduced to us, and then we have a crisis from without. And uh, you need to know that what takes place here in this short passage of the stilling of the storm is a test of these disciples' faith, a shaking, if you will, of their foundation. It's an opportunity for them to come to grips with, well, how much had they really grown? How much were they really trusting? Because see, hanging out with Jesus on the shore, everybody flocking around, you know, they're sort of the A-team, they're in on everything. It's pretty easy and going pretty well so far. Rejection hasn't really been a big issue yet, although he's beginning to warn them about it. But now they're moving out to where there will be storms, there will be trials, there will be problems. And you need to know that just because you're walking with Jesus and growing in Jesus and pleasing Jesus, well, he's not going to put you in a little spiritual bubble and keep you from all the experiences of everyone else. In fact, as a pastor, I assure you, every struggle you have, everything you go through, hey, I go through them too. And, and why? Because God wants us to all stand alike before him on an equal plane. And he wants us to know and have compassion on one another, knowing the, the difficulties that others face. 
We're to comfort one another with the comfort we've received during our own trials, during our own troubles. Well, at this point, Jesus got into a boat and his disciples followed him. Now, because we kind of skipped over verse 18, I want to go back to it because you need to know he makes this command. A couple things happen and then they, in fact, get in the boat to go. In verse 18, it says, Jesus saw a great multitude about him and he gave a command to depart to the other side. Might want to make note of that. It's it's rather straightforward. He says, hey, let's go to the other side. So they get in the boat. His disciples followed him. And suddenly a great tempest arose on the sea. The boat was covered with waves, but he was asleep. This is one of those potentially life-threatening situations. Now, there were a whole lot of reasons that they could have and should have relaxed. First of them being, Jesus hadn't said, hey, let's go out in the middle of the lake and drown. He said, let's go to the other side. And they should have known from the things he'd taught and the things he'd done that his words have power and authority. And when he says, here's where we're going, here's what we're doing, that's what was going to happen. That's what was going to get done. But you need to know this was no small storm. This was a serious challenge to their faith. I had a kind of interesting experience some years back. I think it, it kind of gave me a feeling, at least, for what they were going through. I was in India with Gail Irwin, good friend of mine, traveling there and teaching in a Bible school in the Kerala province. And, and uh, there were a couple other young pastors. We considered ourselves young back then because we were late 30s, early 40s. And uh, I know some of you are thinking, 40s? Hey, don't trust anyone over 30. That's what we used to say when we were 20. And then it's like 40s, 50s. But... Anyway, we considered ourselves young because Gil was older than us. And uh, he said, hey, look, you guys are going to take a train and go to the other side of India, to the East Coast. And we're like, well, that'll be fun. You coming with us? And he said, no, we get a translator. No, you won't need it. And we're like, oh, you'll have one when you get there. So we get on this train. It's a long train ride, a night ride. So we, we book a sleeper. We get to our room. It has four beds and 12 people booked in it. That's just how they do things in India. There's no complaint department, so we just pretty much figure, okay, that's the way it is. And we, we get to Taruvala, this little fishing village on the east coast of India. And it turns out we're going to get to stay in the home of a man who has been accosted, brutally beaten, and at one point left for dead. And, of course, the Lord preserved his life, raised him back up, and he's serving the Lord. And we get to his house, and, and our translator tells us, hey, this is going to be cool. This is the very guy that you've heard so much about. Well, you can kind of tell where this story's going. That evening, as we're sleeping on the roof, we hear this big ruckus. It's about what well, you can't really tell. Sounds like it's right outside, but it's really about a quarter to a half a mile away. We didn't know at that time there was a bus station down there and all-night buses and just a loud group and stuff. But in my mind, I start thinking, this guy's been accosted. This guy's been beat, man. They beat this guy nearly to death. They, they left him for dead. And now they're coming for us. And I know I wasn't the only one thinking that. Because <laughs> I looked at those other pastors and nobody was getting any sleep. Well, you see, there was no real threat to our lives at that point, but we thought we were in a potentially life-threatening situation. Well, I will say this. When you're in India or any country where Jesus isn't just, well, put up with, but in many cases hated, he said, if they hate me, they'll hate you. Well, we know that, you see. So there was a reason for some apprehension. But the Lord brought us there, and we've got to trust, hey, the Lord's got me here. 
He didn't bring us here to, to kill us. If he wanted to kill us, he could kill us at home. And so, Lord, get us through this safely. Use us wonderfully and get us back so we can be with our families. And, and that was pretty much what was happening. Well, Jesus had told these guys, let's get in and go to the other side. They get out in the midst of the storm in a great tempest arose on the sea. That word tempest is translated one time in Scripture in the New Testament, tempest. Thirteen times it's translated earthquake. It's the only other way it's translated. It's saying that there was this radical upheaval. Now, was it an under-the-water earthquake that was causing some huge waves? Or we, we really don't know for sure. Translators decided to call it a tempest. Maybe that actually means something more than we would imagine. But you get the idea of the severity of the storm from the fact that every other place, he's saying, hey, pressure underneath, banging against each other, the ground splits, serious problems. Well, great tempest on the sea. The boat was covered with the waves, but he was, Jesus was, asleep. I've done some river rafting. It's been a while. And water is one of the, well, it's one of the few places I, I can enjoy myself athletically. I'm not really that, that uh, athletic uh, in, in reality, though I love basketball and lots of sports. I always look like I don't belong out there, you know. It's like if you see me skiing, you'd know, hey, that's our pastor, you know, because it just he doesn't look like he belongs up there. Someone should help him down, see. <laughs> But I love the water, and ever since I was little, I've been in it. And I have gone river rafting and got in these little teeny, you know, one-man and two-man Tahitis. They're like inflatable kayaks. And, and it's a gas, a blast to have the waves crashing over you and to be in those rapids. And, and I've always felt safe, even when we've had those times, and they've come where we've been, you know, taken out of the thing and under the water, and you, you're just spinning. You don't know where up is. And they say, just roll in a ball and just wait. Hold your breath. That's what you do. But, but I've never really been afraid in those situations. And you need to know that these guys were, they weren't just guys that played in the water. They lived on the water. The, the, the main little core there, the first four, they, they were fishermen. So when fishermen are terrified, when the waves are crashing over the boat, and you don't want to picture here, you know, something with a cabin or anything. These are just little open fishing boats. And, and the waves are coming over. And, and if you read all three gospel accounts, Matthew, Mark, and Luke all tell us a story. You'll find that these guys were truly threatened and, and truly fearful for their lives. So the boat's covered, but Jesus is at peace, at rest. How can that be? Why would that be? Well, there were a couple of things. I think I made mention of one of them. Jesus already knew that they were going to get to the destination because that's what he had set as a goal. He said, hey, let's get to the other side. Let's go to the other side. Also, Jesus knew he was in the Father's hands. And there is great comfort in the midst of trial, tribulation, persecution, the storms of this life, those things that test and try our faith, that shake our foundation a little bit. Man, there's great comfort in knowing I'm in the Father's hands. That's what Jesus tells us. If you're born again of his spirit, if Jesus has come into your life, if you're sealed with the Holy Spirit, you are not only in the Father's hands, you're in Jesus' hands. And he says, nobody's going to snatch you out. No circumstance, no situation, no person, no persecution. And so Jesus knew he was in the Father's hands. He also knew something else. It might not sound like a comfort to you, but it would have been a comfort to him. He knew that he was going to die on the cross. Now, the reason that's comfort here, though that's certainly a, a horror in the future, 
is that he knew he wasn't going to drown in the middle of the lake. If he was going to die on the cross, if he came specifically to give his life a ransom for many, and that's his mission, he tells us, not to be served, but to serve and give his life a ransom for many. He knew it would happen on the cross because he said, I'm going to go and be handed over and they're going to crucify me and I'll be buried, but I'll rise again the third day. Listen, he knew he was going to the cross. And so he was able in the midst of storm, in the midst of trial, Hey, this was the only place Jesus could really get any sleep. Because whenever he was on shore, people were flocking to him in need of him. So there they are in the midst of the storm, waves battering them. And they think, man, this is it. We're going down. We're going to drown. And Jesus, fast asleep, at total peace, they're in the ship, in the boat. Listen, one side note, and I don't want to fail to share it with you. It's possible to be at peace in the midst of storm, in the midst of trial, in the midst of tribulation, and really not be right with the Lord. Such was the case with Jonah. And if you read his story, you'll know he was in rebellion to the Lord. He was running from the Lord. He refused to represent the Lord. And, and he too, in the midst of a storm, this one divinely sent by the Lord. Hey, Jonah, Jonah was asleep as well. And so we want to be careful. We don't want to imagine that, well, I feel I'm pretty much at peace. If someone confronts you and says, and by the way, only someone who loves you will do it, may not always feel that comfortable or loving to you, but the Bible says if you see your brother in sin, go and tell him the fault between you and him alone. If you see it, if someone comes to you and they say, hey, i got to tell you, this isn't lining up, this isn't working out, this isn't right, this is unbiblical, ungodly, unscriptural. You need to know that if you say, well, hey, I'm at peace with all of this, that is no guarantee that you're right with the Lord. There are lots of people like Jonah who are doing the wrong thing and somehow finding a false peace. And I pray that doesn't happen to you. I'm always praying God will just shake us up and stir us up. And if we're getting off, that he'll get us back. That'll keep us close and, and, and tight with him. Well, Jesus was at peace because, well... He knew the Father. He knew he was in the Father's hand. He knew that death was an appointment. It wouldn't be an accident. It wasn't going to be a drowning. In his case, it was going to be, well, the cross, where he would die for your sins and mine, where he'd shed his blood for the forgiveness and remission of our sins. So they awake the Lord. They, it says the disciples came. They awoke him saying, Lord, save us. We are perishing. Now, this is an interesting paradox, a, a mixture of faith and fear. And ordinarily, we would think, well, you can't be full of faith and full of fear. I mean, one has got to drive the other out. But they're experiencing both. And, and I find a bit of comfort in that because I think like these guys, there are times I know I'm a man of faith. I trust the Lord. But I sometimes still find myself a bit fearful. I find myself growing anxious over things that are happening or decisions that need to be made. And, and if it happens to me, it happens to you. If it happens to them, it happens to us. So you don't want to let the enemy convince you that, well, you don't even trust the Lord just because you grow a little fearful. You do the right thing. What did they do? They came and said, Lord, save us. They had enough faith to believe that he could save them. But they were fearful enough that they couldn't just relax and see if he was going to or how that was going to happen. Well, in any case, the Lord responds to all of this. And he asks the question, he says, why? I like that question. 
the Lord's asked me that a few times, and, and I go back through Scripture and I notice it's, if, if you don't get it directly, you know he was asking it. When Abraham, the father of the faith, by the way, when he was going down and he told his wife to lie about being his wife, I'm sure the Lord was saying, why? You know me. You trust me. You, you left all and forsook all to follow me. I've made promises to you. And why? When Elijah was there hiding in the cave after facing off with the 450 prophets of Baal, many of you know the story. There he is, a man who can stand up to 450 men, but he's scared to death of one woman. Well, there may have been some sanity there, but... It was Jezebel who was after him, see? She was bad news and he knew it. And so he's there hiding in the cave and the Lord comes and says, Why? What are you doing here? Why? And I think the Lord would be saying that to some of us today. Why? What are you thinking? Why are you so fearful? Why? Proverbs 3, 5, and 6 tell us, Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge Him and He shall direct your paths. In our study today, we can see the contrast between trusting ourselves and trusting God. Things that our own understanding tells us are impossible, with God they are not. And this applies not just to times of trouble, but trusting Him with everything in our lives. The Calvary Road is a ministry of Calvary Chapel Chico, and you can visit our website, ccchico.com, or download the CC Chico app to contact us and listen to other studies from Pastor Sam. You can also listen to The Calvary Road as a daily podcast by visiting thecalvaryroad.com. We'd love to hear from you, and until next time, may you find grace and peace as your journey takes you down the Calvary Road. And your grace.